Welcome to Military Network Radio, where we'll bring dynamic interviews and fresh information about topics affecting your quality of life at each stage of your military service. Join us each week for information of value that improves your outlook, actions, and encourages each member of the family. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Everyone serves, and together we make a difference. And now, here's your host, Linda Crater. Welcome to Military Network Radio. We're delighted that you've joined us this morning. We have Jason McNamara as co-host with me today, and we are going to be talking about a topic that we hear about a lot, but perhaps don't understand as much as we possibly could be. And so we are going to be talking about intimate partner violence, which is any physical, emotional, or sexual violence and or stalking by an intimate partner, often as a means of intimidation or control. One of the things, this is a huge topic, so we're not going to be able to cover everything today, but it is important to realize that all IPV, intimate partner violence, isn't the same. And it's important to take the experience and put it in a context of understanding. Military families are not immune from IPV, and today we're going to talk with two experts and learn more. Both of these women have many, many credentials after their names, but also strong field experience, which I think you will hear come through when they're able to share stories and pass on information that you may not have heard before. Our first guest is Glenna Tinney, retired Navy captain, used to work with the Battered Women's Justice Project and now works as a consultant for many other programs like that. We also have Lynn Anderson, who's the IVP D. V, domestic Violence Coordinator at the McGuire VA in Richmond, and we are so happy to have you. Welcome to Military Network Radio, Glenna and Lynn. Thank you. Thank you. You're very, very welcome. That was a long introduction, but I'm going to let you all talk the rest of the time. I think <laughs> that it is um, interesting on how someone gets involved as well in IPV and, and what drew you each to this? So perhaps just in a real short synopsis, uh, let's start with you, Glenna. What drew you into the IPV arena? Well, I, I got my master's degree in social work in the mid-70s, which is right at the beginning of the battered women's movement and the movement to develop uh, rape crisis centers. Mm-hmm. I, went, I went to work for a mental health center in Alabama and um, became involved in helping to develop the first bad women's shelter for that community, as well as the first rape crisis center. And I also come from a military family. My father was retired army. And then I ultimately entered the Navy and began working on uh, family violence, child abuse, neglect, and um, domestic violence. So my, my history with this started back in the mid seventies. Excellent. So you've been there for quite some time, but you have stories to tell. Uh, Lynn, how about yourself? Um, I think where I got interested in it was when I um, when I was in the military, and I did a lot of volunteer work with um, uh, Longstreet Regional Medical Center with their substance abuse programs and working with uh, families and, and children that were either victims of child abuse or were experiencing intimate partner or domestic violence in the home. Um, I left the military and got my master's in social work in 99, and um, my first job was supervising a one-of-a-kind program in the nation called the Second Responders, where we actually had social workers embedded with the police, and we would go out with the police, and we'd go to a lot of domestic violence and do a lot of work with with, um, 
men and women who were being abused and try to get them um, as safe as possible. Um, so it's, it's a passion of mine, and um, it's it's just one of those wonderful programs that does so much for our um, society and for our, our children and also for our, the people that are surviving it. Absolutely. And I think it is important to note that because of the hour time frame that we have for this, we will be bringing in, um, but only contextually, um, the co-occurring conditions of PTSD and TBI, uh, substance abuse, depression, those kinds of things. We will be talking about them as part of risk factors and bring them in somewhat, but we think that we can put an entire show together on additional reasons why there is IPV and DV. Uh, Let's talk first about the definition. Why do you use the term, Glenn, I'll give this one to you, IPV versus domestic violence or battering? Well, um, domestic violence has come over the years in, in many jurisdictions to be a broader term, which refers to any kind of violence that occurs within a household it's not specific to only the intimate partner relationship. So we use intimate partner violence to really highlight that we are focusing on the relationship between the intimate partners. Um, sometimes they're married, sometimes they're not. Uh, but it doesn't include children, and grandparents, and, you know, other violence that occurs in the family. Um, and, you know, battering is a type of intimate partner violence, and I think we're going to talk about that a little bit more in mm-hmm. a few minutes. Absolutely. A very important part to talk about. But I think it is important because when people think of domestic violence, um, they automatically think of first responders who get a domestic call and something like that. So intimate partner violence is between the relationship of the intimate partners. And it can be, I think, what was most interesting to me as you and I spoke and uh, Lynn and I corresponded was that it can be physical, emotional, Uh, sexual violence, but it can also include things like stalking. So fear and intimidation and control are also very high components of this condition. Can you speak a little to that, Lynn? Uh, Yeah, so it's when I first started in this field and was was watching and and learning and watching how the manipulation and um, how it becomes such a, a game of power and control and how they systematically take away a woman's um, or I use woman but there are men that are victims you know ability to be independent and have confidence it's you know they become overwhelmed and when you have someone who is being isolated or not having access to funds or being um, humiliated, beaten, um, sexually abused, they they lose a sense of themselves and they get stuck. And mm-hmm. um, one of the things that I do and that our staff do here is is helping re empower the woman, helping the you know the person become more confident with themselves and understand that it's not their fault and that they can they can um, you know do much better for themselves and we can help them with that. Excellent. I, I think it is, is very important that the uh, holistic approach is taken, and I believe that is what you all are doing. Glenna, can you take on, it's, it's a large question, but what are some of the various theories about the causes of IPV? Sure. Um, well, there are 
you know, a lot of beliefs about this. I mean, there are those that believe that um, the dynamics in uh, intimate partner violence are primarily about power and control and intimidation in the relationship. Um, there are those who believe it is more coming from psychological, uh, mental health kind of issues, perhaps like, you know, uh, one theory is what's called an attachment theory, which has to do with um, someone who, when they were growing up, they didn't attach well to their, particularly their mother, and therefore they have attachment issues that play out in their relationships over time. There's, um, there are those people that believe it's all about anger management and that, um, you know, it's someone cannot control their anger and therefore they act it out uh, physically and sometimes sexually. I wanted to add to what Lynn was saying uh, about the and what you were saying about the definition of intimate partner violence. I want to emphasize that it's physical or sexual violence and we often don't get the, um, the sexual piece of that. I mean, people are they're more likely to come in and say there was physical violence. They are less likely to initially talk about the rape, the sexual violence that occurs in the relationship. So, so anyway, there are a variety of theories about, you know, what causes intimate partner violence. Um, and so you have lots of different schools of thought about that. Excellent. I, are there any, um, if, if people are listening and they're saying, I'm, I'm not at all sure I have a dysfunctional relationship, I know that, but I'm not at all sure if what I am living with is IPV. Are there any red flags or uh, words that you look for, either of you, um, when you're talking or people have reached out for support or help? So uh, I can talk about an example of a patient that I worked with recently where uh, she came in and uh, was explaining that her, she and her husband were fighting a lot and that she was concerned that it was escalating um, and it was out of control. And as we, as we started talking, she was, ta- she was excusing what he was doing. So she would say, well, he was in combat. He's got, a, he's got PTSD, so he's going to be angry, and I need to just accept that. And, um, you know, so when he raises his voice and, you know, puts me in the corner and, and, and yells at me that that's just normal because it's PTSD. Um, so when I hear someone talking about the acceptance of violence, whether it's physical, you know, through sexual, then, uh, you know, my, my flags start going up. She talked about not having access to money, that he was mm. going to give her access to the, to the funds, but he didn't. And, you know, so I start hearing that and how he's controlling what she does or setting boundaries of what he expects out of her. Um, those are my red flags. And a lot of times I'll ask, I'll ask a woman if, 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 if this partner was mad at somebody else, would they treat that person the way you're being treated? And when, that, when they say no, I'm like, so the person does know and does have discernment that it's not okay to yell or hurt people. Excellent. Glenna, would you like to add to that? No, uh, no, I think that's an excellent example. I mean, I think that, you know, when you when you have control, you have a partner who's trying to control where the partner is going, who they're seeing, what they're doing, they, you know, if they're, um, like she said, controlling the money, like they're trying to tell them what they should do about uh, birth control. I mean, there's just a whole wide range of tactics that um, are would be red flags. But control, I think, is a huge piece of it. I think that's an excellent way to 
define it because it does appear that that is the common thread throughout all of this. We will talk more about these various pieces and unpack this entire IPV concept a little bit more. We're coming up on a break, and so I want to make sure that we have all of the, what I'll call the definitional things. We've got uh, an understanding about the differences between IPV and domestic violence. And we'll come back after the break and we will talk more about the use of violence, the the vigilance that's necessary, risk factors, and safety planning. So we will come back after some short messages and you're listening to Military Network Radio. We'll be right back. Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With Baby and Toddler Instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. walked into a room on a mission to get something and totally forgot what you went in there for? I do it all the time, which makes me feel like a total civ head, as the Brits would say. Some might blame it on old age, but a recent study reported in the Quarterly Journal of Experimental Psychology suggests the simple act of passing through a doorway causes memory lapses. It appears the brain regards a doorway as an event boundary and effectively files away whatever you were thinking about as soon as you step through. What's a word for the feeling your thoughts are being stolen? New kleptia. So, what's the solution? Try carrying an object that reminds you of the task. For example, if you go into another room to get a pair of scissors, carry the object you want to cut. It's Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're talking with Glenna Tinney and Lynn Anderson about IPV. And on the break, we were talking among ourselves. And Jason, you had a question you'd like to ask. Yeah, so, um, well, a, a couple of things. I think I want to um, bring some contextual uh, framework to this a little bit. But um, so let me ask that question, and then I, I want to um, tip into sort of a personal experience and, and um, help navigate the conversation there. So from a contextual part, um, I, I think, and um, feel free to, to jump in here, um, Glenn Orlin, but, you know, IPV falls under what I would, for in my layman's terms, a larger umbrella. Um, can you help? explain what that is and how that looks to someone who might not be so familiar with it? Sure. This, uh, yeah, I will do that. Um, 
when we're talking about the co context in which the violence is embedded, we're looking at the larger picture. Um, we're not focusing on one incident, you know, because mostly there's more than one incident. It's rare that there's just one incident. So we're looking at the uh, kind of the history in the relationship, what kind of, uh, you know, behaviors and tactics have been used over time. And we generally think about four different contexts. I mean, it used to be that, you know, everybody thought all intimate partner violence, domestic violence cases were the same, that they were all battering, but that's not necessarily true. Sure. Um, you know, we talked about battering, and, you know, that's a pattern of behaviors, coercion, intimidation, and there's an entrapment component to that, which, you know, like we talked about before, the victim's uh, world narrows more and more. But we also have what we call violent resistance, where you have where there's been abuse ongoing in the relationship for a long time, and the victim may use violence to defend themselves. They also may use violence proactively because they know it's going to happen anyway, or they may just be fed up and they may be using violence in the relationship as well. That's violent resistance. And then we have non-battering use of violence, which usually is where um, situations that are ongoing issues, conflicts in the relationship um, that haven't been resolved, where there's um, uh, sometimes it escalates into violence, could be on either side of the relationship. And then, um, but in that one, I want to be clear, there's no fear generally, um, and there's not a use of intimidation and control. And so that's what we call intimate partner violence without coercive control. And then the last one, which is one we're going to talk probably more about today, is pathological violence, which may be influenced by psychological problems, some substance abuse, mental health um, conditions, those kinds of things. And the assumption is, when you're talking about military personnel and veterans, that they all fall under pathological violence. And I just want to be clear as we're talking about context of violence, that for military personnel and veterans, they could be their violence in their intimate relationship could be within any of these contexts. They could be a batterer, it could be violent resistance, it could be non-battering use of violence, or it could be related to the co-occurring conditions. But we can't make an assumption that just because they're military or a veteran and they, and they deployed to a combat zone and came back and now are having intimate partner violence in co-occurring conditions, that it's being, quote, caused by the co-occurring conditions. So, so that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the context in which the violence is embedded. And so when we think about, um, I'm just gonna unpack the pathological one because I think that's the one that, that might resonate with folks and I know it certainly resonates with me and some of the folks that we work with. But um, so you, you mentioned um, something that I wanna underscore again and that is that we can't just assume that because they've been deployed to a combat zone, then they come back now they're back in the rear and that it's directly um, connected to that specific instance in the combat zone, that there's probably a larger context to it. Is that my layman's understanding? Right. So what, what, what happens when you deploy, if you look at it from a holistic standpoint, is, is you know, the military is a, is a unique um, culture all of its own. It's a very closed environment and a closed system. So when you deploy and you leave your family and you think about what you're leaving for six to nine months or a year, you know, you're leaving uh, uh, weddings, you're missing deaths, you're, with, you're miss, missing births, um, and the partner who's there with children is then stepping into both roles of the parent. Um, while the 
uh, service member is in a combat zone. And there's this, there's this assumption that, you know, if you're in a combat zone, you're going to have, you know, stress, which is true, and you're going to have a lot of um, 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 traumas, which, again, could be true depending on, on where you were stationed. Um, and then when you get back, they talk a lot about the reintegration back into the community, into the family, and into, you know, the, the local areas, and that there's, it takes time to do that. And this, these wars that we've had is the first time that we've had uh, service members that have deployed multiple, multiple times. I have a veteran that's deployed nine times. Um, it's the first time we've used the reserves and the guards at the level that we've used mm-hmm. them. Um, and so they're coming back, and they're not having just one pulling out of a family situation, but multiple, multiple experiencing, you know, a lot of different um, violence or, or death or fear of that. Um, and so there's this, what I see is this sense that they need an adjustment period, that they are going to have that hypervigilance. It's normal. Um, if you walk around the VA, you'll see veterans doing it, looking around, always knowing where people are. And sometimes we excuse or we say the reason they're lashing out or the reason they're doing this, you know, something violent is because of what they witnessed or because of PTSD, TBI, whatever. Um, but if you really sit down and you assess them and you assess the, the, the victim, for lack of a better word, is you will start seeing in their social history that this is really not the first time. There are, there are other issues where they started controlling or there's the beginning of this possible IPV going on. Um, so it's you know you got to look at all of those and look at 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 not just saying because they deploy this is why they do it. So what what I hear you saying, and please confirm that 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 just because they were deployed doesn't mean that that was causation for a specific IPV, right? This is actually something that was probably way further upstream, um, and then the deployment added on to or propelled in this case um, the the um, the violence is, is that correct? Yeah, just like if if one person deploys and they get very serious TB, you know, a very serious uh, PTSD, another one may just have a little bit, have a smaller, not as many, you know, issues with it, and and are able to recover quicker. Sure. So this, can I just add something to that because <clears throat> I think it's important. There is no research to tell us how these break out. So, you know, you, you definitely have some subgroup of people who were abusive prior to deploying and coming back, and then they may have co-occurring issues. You also have some subgroup of people who were never violent in the relationship prior to deploying and coming back and having issues. So what's really important, I think, that, Linda, uh, that Lynn was alluding to was um, the importance of doing a really good assessment to look at you know, when you have co-occurring issues to ask about IPV, when you have IPV to ask about co-occurring conditions. So, you know, you really have to sort through it and determine what are the symptoms of like PTSD, but what are IPV tactics and how you tease those apart. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, So, and obviously we can start to go down, um, how we start to analyze and how we start to look at reintegration and what that actually looks like. But I want to pause for that for one second because I want to come back to something that I think is really important. Um, And it's this idea of the women's use of violence where we're thinking about the differences between how women 
use violence and how men use violence. And I think, um, you know, Linda made up a, uh, made a comment on break that, you know, we try to have a balance of male and female on the show because it mm -hmm. gives different perspectives. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's really important here too, because I think we're seeing more and more women that are, you know, signing up for the military. This is no longer a quote unquote men's game. This is really um, about who wants to serve their country. And we're seeing an increase in enlistment for uh, women. That's a great thing for, for that. Um, but then there's also downstream side effects. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about what, what maybe some of the differences are and how gender changes the way they use violence? Yeah, I would like to jump in on that. Because um, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a lot of uh, research out there that is really saying that IPV is gender neutral and that women are as violent as men in their intimate relationships. And, you know, I, I'm, women are violent in intimate relationships, but there are some differences in terms of how they use that violence and the effect of the violence. So, um, <clears throat> you know, women, um, women, and they're generally not batterers. As we've defined battering, you know, they're generally not um, batterers. Um, and because there's often not that uh, attempt to int uh, dominate or intimidate in the relationship, their violence is often minor and ineffective um, and has little impact on the partner. You know, many of the cases that I see or that I have to do technical assistance for, um, they, <clears throat> they are defining, you know, that um, they are afraid of their partner um, and that they're, um, you know, they're the violence, it keeps them from doing things in their lives. That's not generally true. They're afraid to leave. They can't leave. They're threatening them if they try to leave. Men often, when they're, if it's a, a abuser's a woman, are they're not, they don't feel like they can't leave the relationship. They don't have the same level of fear. The, the level of injury is often different because unless the woman partner is using um, a weapon, uh, then, you know, usually... Um, they don't have the same level of fear that they're going to be killed or that they can't leave the relationship. Women often experience more severe consequences, um, you know, the violence. And when they use violence in the relationship, it can escalate their partner's violence, which can increase risk and danger in the relationship. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons why the research indicates that women are as violent as men. A lot of it has to do with the kind of tools that they're using to ask the questions and women's willingness to be more forthcoming. Uh, I do want to make a comment, though, that, you know, there are certainly um, <clears throat> same-sex relationships. IPV is present in same-sex relationships. So when you have two women in a relationship, you can have a batterer, a woman being a batterer in that relationship. But in heterosexual relationships, in my experience, women are generally not batterers. They may use, they use a lot of psychological violence, a lot of emotion, I mean, a lot of psychological abuse, uh, emotional abuse. You'll, you'll hear men talking about that often. But the physical abuse that limits a person's ability to live their life, you don't see that as often with women um, being the abusers in the relationships. And I don't know, Lynn, you may have a different experience with that, but that's what I have seen. No, I actually echo that. I, you know, I think about when I worked first for the locality before I came to the VA, is a lot of times, especially early on, the police were not really make, doing a good job of who should be arrested. They, they couldn't discern that. They didn't have the training. And so women, when they were being attacked and they finally had had enough, they, have, they tend to grab whatever's next to them. 
They're, they, they're weaker. They don't have training, so they grab the lamp, they grab the knife, they grab the pot, whatever it hey, is Lynn, to get out of that. Yeah. Lynn, I'm so sorry. Yeah. We have to go on break now. Okay. You're listening to Military Network Radio, and we will be right back after these short messages. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. and ask, is that all there is? Why is this happening to me? Why am I always broke? How am I going to survive this mess? Then join Dr. Geraldine Tegeloff for Nature Spirits Speak, 7 p.m. Tuesday evenings on toginet.com. Geraldine is a metaphysician, nature intuitive, and prosperity coach who shares with you how she went from totally broke to living what she would call her perfectly prosperous life. Through the combination of a wealth of metaphysical knowledge and her amazing ability as an intuitive, Geraldine brings to you the secrets of her magical journey of healing emotionally, spiritually, and financially. As with the ancient seers and master teachers, Geraldine has a unique gift of being able to connect to the simple yet profound messages brought to us by Mother Nature and happily shares these through today's note to self on her webpage, naturespiritspeak.com. If you need help with your journey, why not connect with Geraldine during her show, Nature Spirit Speak, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Central on toginet.com. ever get nervous riding in an elevator because you're afraid the cable might snap? It's entered my mind more than once. According to Elevator World magazine, on the rare occasion a cable breaks, the car won't hunge plunge to the bottom. This is because elevators have as many as 10 cables holding them up, each capable of supporting a fully loaded car. Sometimes I feel a little mischievous in elevators. Next time you're feeling like a rapscallion, try one of these little jokes. When there's only one other person in the elevator, tap them on the shoulder and then pretend it wasn't you. Push one of the buttons and pretend it gave you a shock. Or maybe start a sing-along. What's a word for a person who thinks he's funny but no one else does? Vitzel soup. I'm Carolyn Davidson and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're continuing our discussion on intimate partner violence, and we were talking before the break about the the differences, the contextual relationships, uh, the differences between men and women and violence. And I know, Jason, you said that you had a story and another question. So why don't you go ahead and ask that now? Yeah. So if we can just unpack the, the pathological violence part a little bit more. And I think, as you mentioned earlier, this is something that most people can probably relate to. Um, but you made a very important comment um, in the last segment, and that was that oftentimes the causation for IPV isn't necessarily because they were deployed in combat or because they had a specific incident in the military per se. This was something that was further upstream and this is just sort of a continuum of that and the incident in the military, be it deployment or some sort of training has propelled that a little more. That's something that I think a lot of folks can resonate with. Um, I know personally that when we deployed to Iraq um, and when we came back, there were a number of folks on our team that basically, um, you know, went off the handle, if you will, for lack of better words. And these are folks that were the top of the top of the top professionals in the military, and they had gone through extensive training. Um, they had gone through extensive testing. 
they were true professionals. Um, even to this day, I would still call them that. And so they came back from deployment. They went back to their partner and abuse was sort of a regular thing, um, either personally to themselves through substance abuse or through direct violence with their partner. So, you know, you made the comment that you got to start analyzing um, not just that specific instance, but you have to look at the, the larger picture of it. So to that point, um, how do you start with that, right? How do you start to frame out, you know, a history or a linear timeline of where things are starting to fall in and how IPV fit into that? How do you, how does one start there? At the way we do it and, and what I think is the best way is to really get a strong psychosocial, biopsychosocial assessment with them and talk about, you know, about what what was their childhood like? What was what did they observe? What was their family dynamics? Um, what are past relationships like? Um, have they ever witnessed or experienced um, abuse of any kind? Um, and then for the military, you know, I found that uh, especially early on when when soldiers would come back, is they would withhold so much information because they were afraid they would get stigma. They'd have the stigma, afraid they'd lose their clearance or not be able to deploy again. Um, they didn't want to see like, they don't want to appear that they're weak. So they held stuff in and, um, you know, the deployment became, um, a factor in why abuse happened or why violence happened, but it was not necessarily the cause of it. If you really look, sit down with them and, and do that strong discussion with them and get that history. Sure. Well, yeah. and also the co-occurring conditions that we're talking about, PTSD, a TBI, substance abuse, depression, those are all contributing factors. They're not necessarily causal. There's a lot of research that shows a connection between post-traumatic stress disorder for veterans um, and an increase in violence in general, as well as increase in their their intimate relationship. But, you know, one of the key things I think that we need to really focus in on is, you know, is this person, is there um, violence everywhere? I mean, I, when I was active duty and I was um, interacting with command and someone would say to me, well, um, I just think it's, um, <clears throat> it's just an anger management issue. And so I would say, oh, okay. So then that person's coming into the command. They're like uh, smacking down the XO, the CO. And of course that was not the case. They were not acting out their violence anywhere except in their intimate relationships. So that's a key piece. You know, if it's if that violence is focused specifically on that intimate partner, then you have intimate partner violence. You don't have the larger just anger piece occurring. You know, yeah, I think this is Lynn. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, well, I, I think that it's important that we are now talking primarily about the um, person committing the violence. It's important also, I think, to understand the victim behavior and why certain times they're not reported. And also, how do you help gather information from vets, as you put it, Lynn, who are not sharing uh, information when they first come back or even after they're back? So two questions there. Um, you, we can take them as you'd like them. But I think it's important to understand the victim behavior as well as the perpetrator behavior. Right. So, um, you know, with, with, with veterans that come back, it's, it's just a matter of building, to me, what I found is a matter of building rapport, and eventually as they get more comfortable, they'll share more. Um, you know, and I've, I've had the same experience where Commander said, it's, you know, it's, it's violence, um, 
but it's not against the command or anybody in their unit. So as I start talking to the veteran about you can control hitting your boss, why can't you control hitting your your spouse? You know, there's you can control it. You do have the ability to. You know, when I look at the victims, because I work with both of them here, and I assess, I assess both this, women stay for a lot of reasons. They stay because they think they can make it better. They think that it, they can, you know, it's going to be different this time. Um, sometimes there's a financial reason to it. Um, uh, you have someone who doesn't have any uh, any resources, isn't working, has been isolated, and they're in, on active duty. They at least have a place to stay. They got they got food coming in. If they've got children, they know that they're taken care of. And then as a veteran, if they've got a high service connection, they've got all these resources available to them. To lose that is is losing everything. It's 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 hard to leave because you're going to lose a lot of, of a lot of material things, but also the stigma of I couldn't make my my marriage work or I couldn't get this to resolve. And and also I think in terms of understanding victim behavior, I mean there's that's a really complex issue and there's a lot of components to it because you know people in our culture we tend to blame victims. We you know we tend to say. Wow, what's wrong with her? She must just she may just like it. She must be masochistic. Why would she stay in this relationship? And and then the the um, perpetrators of IPV they kind of reinforce that. They say you know they they make the person say that think nobody's going to believe you. You know I I'm gonna uh, I'm I have more status than you do. Um, and there's this this kind of perception of good victim, bad victim. I mean, you know, I, I hear it over and over again in, in interacting mm-hmm. with even victim advocates out there in the military system as well as in the civilian system. Because, you know, all of our people that are survivors of intimate partner violence, I mean, you know, they have mental health issues. They have substance issues. You know, they aren't like Rebecca Sunnybrook Farm that shows up in somebody's <laughs> office, you know, that's, that's really nice. And not angry. I mean, they have a lot of anger often. And they can be, and you know, when the police show up, they're the ones who are hysterical. But he looks fine. She looks like a nutcase, you know. And so there's a people who don't understand the dynamics. You know, they tend to blame the victim and think that, you know, she is a, she's just making him hit her or she's just making him be violent. And then the other issue about not leaving that I really want to emphasize is risk and danger. You know, there's a lot of data showing that when someone tries to leave a relationship, particularly a battering relationship, that that increases the risk of lethal intimate partner violence. You know, it's kind of that if I can't have you, nobody can. Mm-hmm. And, you know, or the threats and if there's weapons and there's substance abuse and there's mental health issues, then that all increases risk of lethal intimate partner violence. Wow. Yeah, and when you look at the at veterans in the military, they have access to weapons. They they like to have control. We like when I was in the military, I loved being the staff sergeant in charge. Um, you know, so and they if they're overseas, they even have control of whether the the spouse can stay or they have to leave. And so you have all that control that the victim is oftentimes just just sitting there because they don't have an exit. And it is one of the most dangerous times. And when you look at resources in the community for for victims, some of the shelters that are available are often full or they they can only keep or allow them to stay for a short period of time, not enough time to get a job, to get recentered, to get a place to live and, you know, do all the things you need to do to be successful and, and live well. Very true, which brings up the point of at at which point as you're talking to victims, um, or family members or the, the 
two in the relationship, do you discuss safety planning? Because I know it, if it gets to the point where it is truly, uh, you know, possibly going to be lethal, certainly going to be injurious, is safety planning something that comes up very openly, that is understood as a consequence if this continues? I'm, of course, talking about those that are in treatment and trying and making an effort to get help. And on that point, are you seeing that people are open to getting help for this? Or is this one of those hidden issues where the tip of the iceberg is the only group that are getting help and all those below the waterline are not? How would you take that, Glenna? Well, you know, um, women who are in violent relationships, they often seek, they have all kinds of strategies for for trying to Mm -hmm. stop violence and for trying to increase their safety. And they often reach out first to those people closest to them. They might reach out to family. They might reach out to friends, clergy, uh, healthcare providers. The last place they generally are going to go is to a shelter or to seek out a victim advocate. And that only can occur, occurs usually when it's gotten more significant, the violence has gotten higher, or become, the person starts uh, abusing the children or threatening the children. I mean, there's a statistic that says that, you know, women go, many women go in and out of that relationship like about, you know, eight times before mm-hmm. they get to a place where they actually leave the relationship for all those reasons that Lynn was communicating, um, plus just, you know, the lack of resources. Many of the systems that are in place to assist victims of intimate partner violence and keep them safe they often fail them uh, for various reasons. So, you know, they, if they've had a bad experience reaching out to the military family advocacy program or reaching out to the civilian law enforcement or a civilian agency, if that experience was bad, then that causes them to not reach out again and they try to deal with it on their own. Safety planning is something you start doing from the very beginning. When, you're, when you identify there's IPV, you start talking to that person about what are, what are they doing to maximize their safety. And safety planning is an ongoing process. You, can't, mm-hmm. you don't do safety planning one time, fill out a form, and you're done. You know, it's, it's an ongoing process. Um, and it, you know, it, it really has to focus on uh, not only what you do to be safe if you're leaving the relationship, because, you know, once you leave a relationship, that doesn't make you safe. You see all those cases, and we see those cases where they find them. You know, they move away. They go through several states. They stalk them. They find them, and sometimes they kill them. Um, so, you know, that doesn't make you safe necessarily leaving the relationship. The safety planning has to help people who are not ready to leave the relationship because they just don't have everything that is needed in place or they're just not ready to go. Because, you know, the majority of people in abusive relationships, they want the violence to stop, but they don't necessarily want the relationship to end and they don't necessarily want their partner to go to jail. So, you know, it's a very, it's a catch-22 for them and it's not an easy decision to make. Good point. Excellent point. We're going on a short break and we will be right back after these short messages. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. If you're ready for a big change in your work, your career, your happiness, your life, it's time for the Million Dollar Mindset with Marla Tabaka. Monday afternoons at 2, 1 central on Toginet.com. 
Marla believes that with the right mindset, anything is possible. Join us as successful life coach Marla Tabaka inspires you and her clients to explore, discover, and live your dreams by developing what she calls the million-dollar mindset. Marla will inspire you to take action on your dreams and reveal secrets to success that will help you realize your own unique power. Tune into the million-dollar mindset for heartwarming stories with Marla Tabaka. Learn tips and tricks to building a successful business and unlock the secrets to creating a happier, more balanced life through abundant thinking and attraction power. For more information on the Million Dollar Mindset, go to our website, MarlaTabaka.com. That's M-A-R-L-A-T-A-B-A-K-A.com. It's the Million Dollar Mindset with Marla Tabaka. Monday afternoons at 2, 1 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. Man cannot live by bread alone. He must have his peanut butter. Peanut butter is a pate of childhood, and it's not just for kids. His dogs love it, too. Last night, I gave my dog a pill hidden in peanut butter. What's a word for a messy concoction that helps the medicine go down? Sliver sauce. Mice apparently prefer peanut butter to cheese when it comes to luring them into the trap. But there are even more practical uses for peanut butter. Peanut butter contains natural oils, which makes it perfect for removing all kinds of sticky things, like gum stuck in your shoe or in your hair. What's a word for the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth? Arachibutophobia. And according to Barry Goldwater, if you don't mind smelling like peanut butter for two or three days, peanut butter is a darn good shaving cream. It's Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're talking about intimate partner violence with Glenna Tinney and Lynn Anderson. Let's divide this into two parts at this point. Active duty response to IPV and VA response to IPV. So I'll direct the DOD question to you, Glenna, talking about the Family Advocacy Program, Victim Advocate Reporting Options, those kinds of things. Okay. Well, the, the Department of Defense has a Family Advocacy Program, and each military service has a Family Advocacy Program, as well as the Coast Guard also has a Family Advocacy Program. This is the program that... Um, is focused on prevention of and response to family violence, including child abuse and neglect, as well as intimate partner violence. Um, <clears throat> the, there's a family advocacy program at every installation, it, it, mostly every installation where there would be family members. I mean, you have some really isolated duty stations where, they're, where they don't allow family members, so there wouldn't be a family advocacy program there. But most installations, both in the United, continental United States and outside of the continental United States, have family advocacy programs. And that program has clinicians, uh, they have victim advocates who are available to work with um, victims and help them sort through their situation and make decisions. And one thing, um, when I was active duty, if a victim showed up uh, anywhere in the system and reported there had been intimate partner violence, then basically all hell broke loose. You know, I mean, there was, all, the command was notified, law enforcement was notified, all kinds of actions were taken that the victim who came in to get medical care didn't necessarily want. But now DOD has made changes to um, the reporting, and now victims have reporting options that give them an opportunity to make more informed decisions. So they can come in and see specific people in the system, victim advocates, clinicians in the family advocacy program, and medical providers at the military medical treatment facility, 
and they can they can tell them that there has been intimate partner violence, but they that does not trigger a report to command or to law enforcement, and that is called a restricted report. Um, so now people can do that and have the opportunity to work with a victim advocate in order to go through all the pros and cons, um, you know, help work toward getting to a place if they want to leave the relationship, having all of the resources in place for them, having housing, all of that available to them. The other option is unrestricted reporting where they come in and they say, yes, I want the command to be notified. Um, I want action to be taken against the abuser. Um, and then the command is notified, law enforcement is notified. Um, and of course, you know, I want to be clear, though, with a restricted report, then no action is taken against the abuser. There cannot be a military protective order issued. Um, they cannot uh, tell the, the abuser to leave the uh, quarters if they live in military housing. Um, so restricted report limits, you know, it's limited in that it's not going to um, result in any action being taken against the abuser. But it does give the victim an opportunity to um, sort through and make some and make an informed decision as opposed to just kind of accidentally coming into the system and having everything happen that they didn't want to happen. That's a very, very important point. And I, is it well followed? If you do give a restricted report, is it absolutely followed that it doesn't trigger those things? Well, there are some exceptions. And, you know, um, one of the exceptions is if a person is reporting uh, a situation where it would be considered imminent danger and right. risk of serious bodily harm or death, right. and all bets are off. Then they, You need a duty to warn then. Correct. Okay. And then command would have to be notified. Law enforcement would have to be notified. Um, but, you know, the, that interaction, if, if there's an exception, that has to be clearly communicated to the victim because, you know, they, they're, they're at increased risk if command and other people start taking actions against the abuser um, and the victim's not aware of that, then that increases their risk and danger. Mm. It makes perfect sense. Okay. Uh, on the VA side, what is the VA response to IPV, Lynn? So in 2012, as they, as they convened a uh, domestic violence intimate partner violence task force, we haven't really had a, a policy or directive that talked about what we should be doing um, and what our, how we were going to handle it. Our medical providers were assessing, but then they really had nobody to refer them to except the social worker, and then we, the social worker would refer out into the community. So part of what they've done now is they've looked at, at what do we need. We've, got, we've been piloting the program. Pretty much every VA now has a DVIPD coordinator um, who works with the community, works with our, our staff. Um, we're available for our veterans that are identifying as, as being victims. Their, their intimate partner, whether they're married, not married, gay, lesbian, doesn't matter if they have domestic violence, we'll work with them. Um, and then also for our employees that are experiencing domestic violence. Um, and so we've been going out in the community doing a lot more collaboration. Um, we're not a silo anymore. Um, and, I mean, some of, the, some of the issues we have that's unique, I think, to the VA is that depending where you go, um, there are some states that have a mandated reporting for domestic violence. Mm -hmm. There are others that don't. And so you have to, our programs have to be developed around those unique, those unique issues. And then, um, um, you know, 
providing the services, couples counseling, um, family counseling, if that's what they want, and um, or, again, helping them prepare to leave at, at the safest uh, manner that they can. You know, it, on the break, we were talking also about the shelters and when someone decides to leave, they're at heightened risk because that's an action that may have causal reactions. Glenna, you mentioned something about the shelters now in different states, sometimes pre- preventing presenting a catch-22 for victims. Can you share that again with our listeners? Yes, I was just commenting on that. Um, You know, I mentioned that I was involved with setting up the first uh, bad women's shelter back in my community. Well, back then, you know, funding was um, more community-based, less institutionalized. But as the shelters have grown and we've government agencies have become involved in funding, there are more and more um, kind of rules and criteria for eligibility in terms of coming into a shelter. And so some victims find themselves uh, faced with the rules and eligibility requirements that kind of conflict with who they are. I mean, you know, if they have active substance issues or they're actively, you know, have significant mental health issues, they have sometimes if they have a older male child, I mean, there are, that can preclude someone's ability to go into a shelter um, and, you know, that then leaves them unable to find a shelter. Plus, um, the Department of Health and Human Services that does a lot of the funding of shelters I mean, you know, there are thousands and thousands of people who show up for shelter care or needing shelter care every single day uh, that are turned away because there just isn't enough room. There are not enough beds in shelters to accommodate the need. Can I just can I just um, I do want to say one thing about what Lynn has said before in terms of the VA. Mm-hmm. She mentioned couples counseling and I just you know, I really we always are very cautionary about couples counseling when there is intimate partner violence involved. While there is active abuse occurring in the relationship, we, we seriously do not recommend couples counseling because that can then lead to increase of risk and danger for the victim. You know, if they're in a couples counseling session and they say something that the abuser doesn't like, they're going to get it when they get home. So that, you know, it, you, there has to be other intervention occurring to stop the violence before you put violent couples into couples counseling. Right, and absolutely on that. I mean, when we do couples counseling, it's it's when they've been, both have been in, in therapy, they've been doing a lot of work, they're at a safe place, and um, and if they both want it, um, where it's, an, it's, it's a safe environment and there's equality within the, the session, then we would look, then we look at doing that. I'm um, wondering about the community response. You mentioned there are thousands of victims turned away daily. Is the community response that this is a complex issue and so it is very difficult to set this up? Is it a regulatory thing with the rules criteria that make it a catch-22 as we just discussed? What is the reasoning and the general response by the community to helping resolve some of these issues of IPV? Well, I think the lack of resources is a huge issue mm-hmm. in terms of not just not having enough money to mm-hmm. um, have the adequate number of beds. I, you know, there, many communities have developed what we call a, coordinate, a coordinated community response where they bring together all of the different groups and agencies who would be involved in um, 
uh, responding to intimate partner violence, including the military, if it's a community where there's military installation. Um, and they work on developing uh, memos, memorandums of understanding with each other for information sharing, for a smooth transition, you know, should a, a military uh, victim want to go into the civilian world. Um, I think the VA is trying to, uh, as Lynn was making reference to, they're trying to reach out and have collaborative relationships with the local domestic violence programs to have, again, a smooth transition for victims using utilizing those services. Um, so, you know, there's a variety of kind of responses to it. I, I don't know that there's much to do about some of the eligibility criteria. I mean, I, I don't know that all shelters um, are rigidly subscribing to those. Maybe they are. I mean, I, I you know, it, it creates it just creates problems for victims who who are, again, not that perfect victim. They're you know, they have issues um, and they still need somewhere to go. I think it's important. We're down to two minutes, and I did want, uh, Glenna, for you to mention the Battered Women's Justice Project because it's got an e-learning course. It's got a lot of important information as well as we have the VA and DOD websites that help. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the BWJP? Right. The Battered Women's Justice Project is a technical assistance provider for the Office on Violence Against Women, focusing specifically on the uh, just civil and criminal justice response to intimate partner violence, and there is a military and veterans uh, advocacy program. So if you go to the Battered Women's Justice Project website, which is bwjp.org, um, and you click on, there's a, a links for projects, and you click on the military and veteran advocacy program, We have, there's an eight-module e-learning course that goes into many of the topics that we've touched on today in a lot more depth. Mm -hmm. uh, including one, a module on risk and danger, DOD response, veterans response, as well as Guard and Reserve. There are many archived webinars there. We have a, a handbook for civil attorneys representing victims of intimate partner violence who are connected with the military. We have a whole uh, collaborating for safety, the whole uh, coordinated military and civilian response to domestic violence. Um, and we have understanding the military response to domestic violence tools for civilian advocates. Um, I also want to say Brian Club is the coordinator for that program who can be reached at 571-384-0985 or his email address is bclub, C-L-U-B-B, at bwjp.org. Okay, and I've got to cut you off because we're going to lose time. There's also the va.gov website where you can put in for more information as well. Thank you both for being with us. You were listening to Military Network Radio. We're delighted you joined us today and talk with you next week. Thank you for tuning in today to Military Network Radio. You can find our show at our website, www.toginet.com forward slash Military Network Radio. Also, www.militarynetworkradio.com and in iTunes under Military Network Radio. Join us next week when we bring you another program to enhance your